0: was kind of like, oh, so maybe I should just be happy? You know? Is it just that? Should I just be happy? I was kind of unsatisfied. Like, I wanted I wanted magic. I wanted uh, supernatural powers. And, oh, uh, why
1: would you want supernatural powers? What would that do for you if you had supernatural powers?
0: The thing is, I never really knew. I was always kind of like looking for something I couldn't quite define but lately i've just kind of said screw that let's try this happiness thing and so far i like it better <laughs> right a happy meal yes right <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah let's have a happy meal without the email <laughs> <laughs>
0: that's a good one too yeah a right there.
1: <laughs> mm. <laughs> so um <clears throat> You're you're actually pointing at where people normally come from in the West is that they misinterpret the actual teachings of the Buddha because of bad translations. It started bad translations, it remained bad translations, and new students read those bad translations and then practice incorrectly. Even though some of the masters do talk about the joy, that in fact, uh, 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 thanks to Daniel Ingram, he has actually done the literature search down in the Mahasi to find that Mahasi Sayadaw also recommended joy. And Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa for sure recommends joy. But the books that are written in the name of Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa is like page 200 and something of the book before he mentions the joy. By saying, and by the way, this is the first way we have to start our practice this way. This is how we begin. And it's on page 218 <laughs> of one of the, the books that I've got. Um, I had to read it several times to, uh, to to clearly understand that, yes, that's the primary teaching, even though it has various stages and attributes, if you want to put those stages and attributes in there. But... Uh, uh, the whole point then is, is that in the beginning, for a while, we use the joy in order to correctly practice the changing of the mind from unwholesome to wholesome states, and we use the joy to do that. And the joy then will help us as uh, uh, to find uh, the uh, the safety and security and the comfort, and then the satisfaction. So uh, gladdening the mind or using joy is a great benefit to build these other skills. And by doing so, it becomes a skill of its own. So that later in the practice, you will actually take joy as a meditation object, but you can only do that when you're absolutely up to your eyeballs in it. That you cannot take joy as an object of meditation when you're in an ordinary state of mind, and so okay, we so, take, so we use joy to help foster other objects of meditation that we're uh, working with, and there's a whole slew of them, sixteen in fact. <laughs>
0: so, so for me, I noticed that. Uh, I think I did a lot of the footwork of meditation in the earlier years. I can feel the body quite well. I can notice the mind quite well. And now what I've started doing is simply just to release, relax, re-smile, return to the pleasant state of just sitting there breathing. And I find these pleasant states come up. Um, So, But I don't know what what then to do. I mean, I feel happy and it's sort of carries out into the day and that's great is there any is there more to the practice i guess is
1: my basic question okay Uh, i will approach that question from a slightly different angle that has a whole lot more dhamma in it and the uh the way to to look at this is to recognize that thoughts are unwholesome and that we have to get the mind into a wholesome state. If the thoughts are unwholesome, then that's going to be what we're noting. So the Mahasi people are actually out there noting unwholesome thoughts. They're noting and getting very good at noting dukkha. And it's almost as if the path that they're they're practicing is not the path of the Buddha, Dukkha, Dukkha Naroda, but it's Dukkha, Dukkha, see the Dukkha, dig into the Dukkha, get that Dukkha and get the Dukkha beside that Dukkha because they're associated and go right down that Dukkha hole. That in practice this is part of the teaching of how it's to be applied is you've got to go into the dukkha long enough to where you find the state of misery fearfulness disgust despair and i'm listing them all six seven actually i got seven six um eight nine of the mahasi 16 stages of insight the whole point is is that that whole deep dukkha hole is unnecessary and is very, very Christian like. The Christians have a dark night of the soul when they keep talking to Jesus and he won't answer. They keep talking to God and God don't talk back to them. They got books mm-hmm. say he does. We got preachers who say he does and he won't talk to me. What the hell's going on now, God? Why ain't you talking to me? Come on, man, give me something. I want some evidence. I want some proof. And when they don't do it, they feel bad because God's the only way out of the, of the hole they've dug for themselves and they expected God to do it. And God ain't going to do it, okay? So dark nights of the soul are not really what we're talking about here because this, the, the dark night of the soul has to do with the quality of not only do you go into a state of despair, it's not the deep despair that there is no way out. But in fact, we begin to see the great longing to get out was what we started with in the first place. So that's when we decide to redouble the effort, which in fact, the right way to say it is that that's when the student finally takes noble right effort. Rather than so, so much, too much effort. And that's when he finds then step 12 of the Four Noble Truths. Now, here's the point. Let's start with the Four Noble Truths for those students who are ready for the Noble Truths or students like you who have been down the other parts of the early parts of that thing. Let's short-circuit all of that and go right into the Four Noble Truths, step 12. The funny part about it is, is that what is step 16 of that is ongoing investigation which is what we should have started with in the first place. And so that 16 stages of insight's got some issues. And uh, it fits really well into the Western mindset. It's almost like that uh, whoever invented that thing, which is that the fingers are all pointing at Buddhaghosa, But whoever did that thing was probably already in the wrong mind state, or they wouldn't have come up with the practice that way. And also in the Vasudhi Maga is where they have that the, uh, the teaching of Batita Samapada takes three lifetimes. Well, the answer to that is true. It does take three lifetimes. What are the three lifetimes? The immediate past. The immediate present moment. And the immediate and ongoing future. Those are the three lives. What did you just do? What are you doing? What are you about to do? And when we understand that, then we fully understand not only the uh, teaching of uh, Paticca Samapada, but we understand what really is that's being reborn, which is the unwholesome thoughts, basically. And so um, that there's this whole magical mindset about Buddhism. But if you look at the paticca Samuppada teaching in the sense of a deep, dark past, a long lifetime of the future, of the present moment, and then a deep, dark, long future. If you look at it like that, then you're automatically practicing wrong according to the teachings of the Buddha, who's always talked about the here now. They called him, and he called himself, Tathagatha. That should be enough right there, because Tatata means this, thus, the present moment. And that's the main teaching of the Buddha. So these teachings of past and future, what difference does it make whether the past was five days, five years, five lifetimes ago? It's in the past, it's gone. It's on the rubbish heap. It doesn't matter how deeply it's buried into the rubbish heap. it's It's buried in the rubbish heap of time. And we're constantly spraying new stuff onto that rubbish heap. So let's pay attention to what we are spraying on that rubbish heap rather than digging down into stuff that was sprayed on it long ago. And that's the problem with rebirth, because if people believe in rebirth, then there is no way out. And remember, the teachings of the Buddha is all about this present lifetime. Let's do it now. But if you believe in the past and in the future, then that means then that in the present, we can't do anything about the past, and we really can't do anything about the future other than making some merit. But right now, we're screwed because we are bound to the past. Because of that teaching of good action gives good results and bad action gives bad results, we wind up being bound by the past. And so it doesn't matter what religion you're in, we get bound up by the past, bound to the future. And what we need to do is to unbind from the past and the future in order to live our lives right here, right now. And if you do find a way of unbinding at least a little bit from the past, then one of the things that we unbind from the past is all the rules about how you're supposed to feel and the way that you do feel so that now you have a choice about the way you feel. And now that you've been actually practicing and putting some uh, common machine coins in on uh, uh, joy, you've got a little bit of it built up now and sort of an equity. So my question now would be, would you prefer to choose joy over all of the feelings that you used to have that had a lot to do perhaps with struggle? Mm. So that's why the teaching of the Buddha is uh, the way that it is and that we can go by all of the stuff about magic magical past magical futures magical other places and magical trips to get there and magical toys to bring back and all kinds of magical belief systems and that's why i was asking you as we started the call about what what's what about magical powers why would someone want magical powers what's the what's the question i mean you see a lot of people seeking it. You even have groups going on fire and casino meditation, spending huge amounts of money to try to gain some magical power. Both the teachers and the students. Somebody's making some money, but nobody's getting any magical power. So what's the point? What happens when people, I mean, they want them, but why? Why do people want magical power? Marcus, you've got to.
0: Sure, that's some insight
1: into huh?
0: people like people like power. People like control over things. Um, also, people but might want to be praised or because they want it they're wanting, and
1: it's uh, that's oh, the whole point. If that you want something; cover up something. Okay, we want power to defend.
0: Mm, that's a good point. Yeah.
1: Underlying that is fear. The whole point then would be that people want. Power, magical or otherwise so that they can feel safe and guess what Putin has more nuclear weapons than anybody else in the world and he's probably the most terrified dude in the world there's a toss up between him and Donald Trump right now who's the most petrified terrified human on planet earth and both of them have been and wallowing in power Funny thing about that, if you want power in order to feel safe, you have to understand that when you've got power, all the other people who want to feel safe see you as a target and an enemy, and they want your power. I think, in fact, every one of the uh, the, the uh, old, old medieval stories about who had the magical power was that he needed that magical power because he had real enemies, I mean, the Lord of the Rings, the guys who've got the real power. Or how about the, the Jedi and the Sith, all of that, all after power, and power creates enemies. Because they want your power. Why? Because everybody in the crowd feels unsafe, and we want power in order to feel safe. Guess what? every one of you right here right now are actually in a safe environment you're safe you've got nobody breaking in your house to try to strangle you to get your power because you don't have any you've also got no alligators on the floor no crocodiles <laughs> you don't have any um russian mafia banging in, or any SWAT teams coming normally the SWAT team guys are banging on doors Of people who wanted and abused power. But if you don't want any power. You're relatively safe. Knowing that you're actually relatively safe. And the only unsafe part of it. Is what we can dream up of what might happen. Let's start having wholesome thoughts instead. And start practicing feeling safe. Because if you feel safe already, then what's the point of wanting any magical powers? To show off? Will that make you feel any safer? If you go show off, perhaps people will then start making your life unsafe. Did email leave?
0: <laughs> It'd be a internet problem, perhaps.
1: Oh, okay. Let's hope he comes back. In any case, feeling safe is part of joy. That you can't feel joyful if you feel threatened, unless you've got a really sharp mind. And then the threat is merely an aspect of reality that you can deal with as you please. Oh, I'm glad to see
0: you back. Yeah, sorry, my phone uh, jammed.
1: Uh, well, that happens on the Internet quite often. People just poop and disappear, but only in magical power world do people actually poop and disappear. <laughs> <laughs> and since we live in an Internet world, we have kind of magical powers. That's another point about magical powers. It, uh, the 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 story is is that technology that's um, sufficiently advanced beyond the capabilities of the observer is indistinguishable from magic. In other words, if um, if a boombox of the 1970s, with D cell batteries was found someplace out in the jungle where no one had ever heard or seen any electronic device at all and they saw this thing and they started piddling and playing with it and all of a sudden it comes on full blast of sound. How are they going to respond to that? With great fear and trepidation because it looks like it's a magical power but us who understand it We see no power in it. So in that regard, we have to understand that a lot of uh, what we have now is technology gives us a lot of power. It's just not magical. It's real. And so um, we're still ignorant looking for magical power because we don't recognize that we've got really all the power that we need in order to be comfortable, satisfied, and secure. But most of us don't. In fact, the original tool, the very first tool was probably a stone. When I'm saying a tool, I'm talking about something that you can hold in your hand. And the question is whether it was a stone or whether it was a stick on fire. But we know that that, uh, whatever it was that, that learned to control fire was not human, that they because they could control fire, they became human. And along the way after that, the humans picked up a stone and did something with it that was quite unique. Okay, otters, they get a clam and they get a rock. And they bring it up to the surface and put that oyster uh, or clam on their bellies. And they take that rock and they bang on it until they open it. When they get the open, the shell open, what do they do with the rock? They just drop it aside, let it go back to the bottom. Because they're after the food. <clears throat> also, um, animals like gorillas and monkeys are able to take a reed and put it down a hole that they know have creepy crawlers in it. And when the creepy callers can and uh, start to chew on that reed or that blade of grass, they'll pop it out and have a tender morsel. What do they do with the reed? Do they keep it or do they throw it away? They're done with it. It's human to have kept their tools. We find a particular good tool that we find at a carcass where uh, all the animals have already eaten off of it, and there's nothing left much but the marrow. But well, We humans know we can get that marrow out with a, with a stone, and we run across this to, today, a stone that's especially good at breaking up the marrow. Are we just going to throw that stone away? No, this stone is special. The idea of humans is that this stone is different than that stone, is what makes us human. And so we kept the stone. And not much has changed since then, except that we just changed the language. Now we call that stone a cell phone. But it's our protection. We like it. We like material goods because of protection. So the stone gets a a stick, and now it's an axe. And we've been carrying around our axes because we're afraid as a species. And so the whole point about this uh, ancient technology is to recognize that that fear that we have is almost always false positives, that humans started having false positive fears when we started to collect physical merchandise to carry around. This is what is referred to as the appropriation instinct, and one of the things that we instinctively procreate is each other. And when we do that, it's called the nesting instinct, but we only go so far and everybody that doesn't join our nest are now others outside of our territory. And so this is where the instincts come from. But the primary instinct is fear, afraid of death. The self-preservation instinct is the guide. And when you understand that that self preservation instinct that gives rise to fears, mostly false fears, is why each and every one of us look for power in one form or another. Because we think that we're going to have protection from power instead of looking at the fear directly, checking it out, and recognize really what's going on. Start recognizing we can manipulate that fear directly, that we don't have to go get a weapon. We don't go have to go get some magical power in order to feel safe. That We can feel safe because of wisdom. We can create our own security. And the first place that we look is the reality of the situation that right now you're safe. And so it's a really good, I'm not sure about Carl, but everybody else is in a, in a closed room, which makes it safe. I suppose calls feeling safe enough, which is the whole point. That in fact, um, a kind of a strange side note would be ayahuasca and LSD trips and things like that are normally now done advertised to have a guide. Why does someone who is flipping out need a guide on how to flip out? The answer is is because the guide, even if he never says anything, at least is there as a security blanket. People feel safe because if you begin to feel really terrified and afraid while you're on ayahuasca, you will really, times 10, uh, uh, go really into deep fear. And so this is the whole point about fear is, is that we need, with our practice of anapanasati, is to get ourselves in a physically safe place so that we can then get ourselves in a mentally safe place. And we can start doing that immediately. Sitting right down, wow, this is a safe place. I could just sit here in comfort and in ease. This looks like a good place to practice. So we start off with, with safe, secure, and comfortableness just in the physical environment. But many people, when they think of going to a meditation retreat, thinking of the meditation hall, looking at all the cushions all lined up like Hitler or the Scrapple lined them up, and they don't feel quite so safe. It's not a, a meditation halls are not a safe place. But being alone in an empty hut or a pile of straw or under a tree or in the forest, you can feel safe because you're secluded. And so this is a major part of the situation, just the environment that you're in is going to give you conducive to feel safe and secure so that now you can actually talk yourself into it and the feeling part will go along because the wisdom is there that it actually is a safe place. So all of these things work together to where you begin to feel safe and secure And that by the way is then uh, the term in the Pali is step six of Anapanasati called Sukha. And Sukha is the exact opposite of Dukkha. That in fact, you can rattle off Dukkha in the sense that you feel afraid, you feel uncomfortable, you feel unsatisfied. That's what Dukkha is. So when you feel safe, secure, comfortable, and satisfied, that's not Dukkha. That's Third Noble Truth territory, right there. Freedom from Dukkha is actually part of the practice of Anapanasati, and we talk about it in the sense of do it the first minute that you sit down. This is not something a long-term skill to practice. This is something that you can practice sort of like a, a scale. On the piano, the C scale, the teacher can show it to you several times. You practice it, and within 15 seconds, you got it. You could do the C scale. Why? Because the fingering is easy enough. You only got five fingers, you got eight notes. So you do starting with the thumb with C, D, E, and then you run over to the F with the thumb, and you got the rest of them all lined up. We want to practice. Anapanasati, the way that we would practice the see scale, it's easy to do if you know how to do it. And the first thing that we want to practice is getting the mind into the state of sukha. And how we do that, that's a feeling. We do it by getting the body into a state of feeling comfortable, relaxed, satisfied, uh, content, and at rest. And then we do the same thing with the mind through practicing wholesome thoughts, by actually looking at this process and thinking about what we've been talking about, and that will be how the mind and the body work together to get us into a good feeling state. Now, <clears throat> Emil also asked, well, what about after that? We've got it. We've got the joy. We've got the suka. We've got the uh, uh, actually The next step would be to gain the confidence that we can really do this. That's the real point about developing the winner's attitude. This is in the eightfold noble path, the Sama Sankapa, which is uh, often translated as right noble intention. But a better word would be right noble attitude and the attitude of can do, got this one, got it wired. I can play the C scale. I haven't played the C scale in 45 years, but I know I can sit down at the keyboard and whack it right off. So that's the way that we would look at this, is that we've got this. We know what it is all about, but in fact, we keep doing it over and over and over and over and over and over over again so that we know that we can do it because we just did it. And we're doing it again. And then we'll do it again, over and over and over again. All right. And what is that? To make sure. (laughs) (laughs) Got it. Show that C scale again. (laughs) Sure. If I can. (laughs) There you go. That's it. All you have to do is figure out that we got to play eight notes with five fingers. Then it's easy. So, in that regard, we can go for this practice over and over and over again, and it builds confidence. And all the while, we're watching what's going on. All the while, we're noticing this stuff. As wholesome or unwholesome, and we've gotten it now to the point that it's wholesome. One wholesome thought after another after another. What do we then do? Well, the actual sutta that has the progress is sutta number 111, one by one as they occur. And what we're actually talking about is is that now, now that the mind is free from unwholesome thoughts, unwholesome feelings, and the mind is in a wholesome state, how are we going to spend our time now? I mean, look, we've already done all the work. All the work's been finished. All we had to do was throw the unwholesome thoughts out. We're just sitting here fat and happy. What are we going to do with it? The answer is we're going to keep doing the same things that we have been with a little twist. And what is the little twist? Now we don't have any unwholesome thoughts. All the thoughts that we have and everything that's to be investigated is all wholesome. Well, what are the things that are wholesome? Well, the things that we have just been developing and are continuing to develop and are developing right now, those become the object of meditation. One by one. And the most important, then the way to start is with, because we've already been doing it, uh, applying the mind to wholesome, applying the mind to the wholesome, sustaining it on the wholesome. Don't let it run away from the wholesome. We got the wholesome. Apply to the wholesome. Sustain the wholesome. we got some wholesome going here, boys. We've got a convoy going. We've got this wired. We can do this. Time after time, watching that this is a wholesome thought. Well, guess what? That actually is quite a lot of work, and we can kind of set that aside. And as we do, I'll tell you a little story. The story comes from Sutra Number Nineteen in the Majjhima Nikaya on two kinds of thought. And in there, there's a story of the um, um, the cowherd. And in that story, the cowherd has to take his cows to graze out to the pasture. But on the way to get there, he has to pass through a kind of a village that has food stalls and people walking around. And he's got to make sure those cows stay in line. If a cow starts to steal carrots, he's got a problem. If a cow runs into somebody's laundry, he's got a problem. If a cow runs over a child, he's got a problem. So he carries a stick, a walking stick. And any time one of his cows misbehaves, he'll take that stick and he'll whack them. This is actually what we're going to be doing with that, wholesome, with that unwholesome thought. We're going to whack it right out of the mind. We're going to whack that unwholesome thought right out of the mind. And we do it joyfully. That he's not harming the cows. He's not punishing them. He's just teaching them, don't go after that carrot. So, After the uh, cow herd gets the uh, herd of cows past this area, down the path into the grazing area, while the cows are grazing, they've got their heads down. They're grazing. They're doing something wholesome now. They're no longer in danger. So that means now that the cow herd does not have to stand there with the cows with that stick. He can put that stick down of guarding the mind You can put that stick down of the applying and sustaining the the thoughts and go sit down under a tree and keep an eye on what the cows are doing. So this actually is a story of how to go from the first jhana into the second jhana is because we change the object of meditation from uh, how the mind is working Into how good we feel. That we've talked ourselves into feeling good. Now let's look at how good we feel. Let's experience how good we feel. If you have talked yourself into being a champion. And you have the feelings of a champion. Then take a moment and figure out. What feeling like a champion actually feels like. Cold shivers go up and down. I feel so good. (laughs) And so this would be the second jhana is that while we're actually experiencing how good we feel, we're not thinking about anything anymore. We've set the applied and sustained thought and we're actually practicing how good we can feel. And as we feel good like that, howling with laughter, yippee ki kaya my what a wonderful day kind of sensations, those are actually quite a lot of work. But throwing our hands in the air and, you, you, you know, with a great big yell, dancing around a victory dance, that's a lot of work. So we let that sort of settle down into a pleasure. Wow, it feels so good to have done a victory dance because I'm the winner now and I got it. And This is third jhana. And then fourth jhana is when you just kind of forget all about it and just be happy. That's the equanimity. And that's when you really begin to see how the mind is working. And so going back to the teaching of the teacher Samapada, this is basically, we practice Anapanasati so that we can get the mind fit for work so that we can see what the mind is all about. And we, by seeing what the mind is all about, that's actually the practicing of the jhanas. And so the jhanas are actually integrally related to but many people actually are good enough and, and skilled enough and took all the time and uh, had whatever insights to practice the four and get the four jhanas and they still don't know what to do with them. That's what happened to the Buddha. Then he went through all of the uh, uh, Samatha stuff all the way to the end of the road. No further going. That's the it, But right to the end of the road. But if you understand it from Pratichu Samupada, then you can understand that the end of the road actually is the end of perception, which is also the end of feelings. That when you can bring perception to a close, then the feelings come to a close. And then you're just sitting there kind of gaga with nothing to do but just take in the show. Because you're not thinking about it. You're not patting around about it. You're not trying to figure it out. You're just there enjoying the spectacular dance the leela and so that's the end of the fourth jhana is is just enjoy the show and so this is what we're going to be doing with it once you get the mind in a place to work look at what you're doing and and start watching the mind start recognizing that you have a choice that you don't have to feel the way that you don't want to feel because you're in the habit of feeling that way you can feel the way you want to feel. Emil, hey, is this making any sense to you? Yeah, it uh, really makes
0: a lot of sense. Um, just to clarify, in practice, where where what I'm doing now, mm-hmm. uh, I sit and and it's enjoyable. I have a smile on my face. Uh, I think I'm. I'm um, over the past couple of weeks started to also access the sort of pleasant feeling in the body and I can just sit and very much enjoy that um, but the whole time uh, obstacles are showing hindrances are coming up every now and then uh, mm-hmm. really in the beginning every few seconds and later on maybe a minute apart and then less and less uh, but that's like the cow doing something else and you whack it by
1: yeah. I mean, you have relaxing. to get up under from under. You have to get out from under that tree. Take that stick and go whack that cow.
0: And it's funny. I like the analogy of whacking it because I even like. Um, I even like uh, when these hindrances come up. Sometimes I even go like fuck you. And, <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: and why uh, I don't that, need to think about that right now. <laughs> the kind of uh, release that I have. Wow, I don't have to do that job. I don't have to think about that thought.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, um yeah, so I guess it was just to clarify that that's the whacking of the cow that you were talking about. When you, when you see a hindrance and you recognize, release, relax,
1: re-smile, yeah. return. mm mm-hmm. Right? Well... Some of the hindrances are not completely 100% mental. That sloth and torpor have a quality of the body, and that's and where we deal with that is with the breathing, because normally when people are sitting quiet, they'll they'll take their breath to a very very shallow breathing, which means that the frontal cortex gets shut down leaving only the thought process and the uh, anterior cortex, which is a much more efficient laptop, and we've actually put our supercomputer to sleep. But Anapanasati is the practice of waking that supercomputer up and let it become in charge. That let it run the show rather than the old program, the automatic pilot. An airliner with a captain and an automatic pilot is a good example that most of the flying can be done by the automatic pilot and the captain can take a nap. Until a flock of birds or a mountain or another airplane or bad weather or the actual landing airport or any kind of thing happens and now the captain's got to wake up and take control of that ship. And that's all about what Anapanasati is. It's to wake up. And to take charge, take over, and don't let the automatic pilot operate. Now, actually, when a kid learns to drive a car, they have to do it with the intelligence. They have to really look at what they're going. But once we get into the habit of driving, we turn it into a habit, and then people don't even watch where they're going. That's why there's so many automobile accidents in uh, the U.S. It's because people think that they have the right-of-way, and they don't have to watch where they're going. If everybody drove around the U.S., not at a, at a high speed, but drove with the mentality of a, a Formula One racer that you've got to watch wherever you're going, we wouldn't have the accidents that we have, right? Well, guess what? A lot of us are living our lives on the same kind of automatic pilot that we drive our cars in. And the whole point of Anapanasati is to wake up and watch what's happening right now. This might be an actual dangerous moment. Can you tell whether this is a really safe moment or whether this is a dangerous moment? Because normally it's going to be safe. But we have to wake up. An example of that would be that we would... Uh, just be cruising along thinking that everything is great and then a really dangerous moment happens and then we freak out with fear rather than just recognizing that well, it's not really all that dangerous. An example of that would be getting a traffic stop. Traffic stops are dangerous because people are afraid of the cops. If you're not afraid of the cop and he knows you're not afraid of him, he's not going to be afraid of you. And so, this is a way of looking at it is that we've got to be ready. So, the training for sati is to train in meditation so that we will be ready for it when it happens. Because there's going to be moments of danger, and we have to be able to handle those dangers with the same fearlessness, if you want to use that word, that we had when we were able to sit at home in uh, Anapanasati. We practice being safe and secure so that when we are out in the world, we can be safe and secure out there, but we have to practice in solitude. But we're going to remain safe and secure when we engage with the world. And part of the reason we're going to be able to feel safe and secure when we engage the world is because the world is now a friend. Why is that? It's because the inside of our own mind has become friendly territory. Everything is unified, and everything is friendly, and we accept all of our foibles and all of our past, and everything is okay, and I'm completely satisfied with the way things are because I'm friendly inside. And when we gain the friendliness on the inside, we can take that friendly attitude out into the safe world where everybody else is unfriendly, because they're unsafe. But let that be their issue, not yours. You can still be friendly. You don't have to join their fear mongering. You can be free from fear. So that's the reason that we're practicing this. They could be unhappy and you can still be joyful. They could be angry and you can still be happy. You don't have to feel the way other people feel, and, and in fact, if you are strong and powerful in your good feelings, it will rub off on them. Just like anger rubs off, the whole point about telling somebody about how angry you are is because you want them to be angry, too. Misery loves company. If somebody's having a pity party, they want other people to join the pity party. Well, if you're having a celebration... Invite people to come celebrate with you. Drop their pity party and their anger and come have a celebration instead. So this is the way that we deal with the world after we've gotten it cleaned out on the inside. And how we're going to do that cleaning out on the inside is by developing the noble right attitude that you can do it, that you can clean out this mess. You've got a handle on it now. If I can play the C scale, I can play the C minor scale. And if I can play the C scale, I can play the D scale. And off we go. We've got it. All we have to do is have that base of success. And so by having the base of success of practicing over and over again, we just expand upon that as to whatever is happening in this present moment. Yeah. This present moment is happy and satisfying and, and everything, and then the dog comes up. And so I bet the dog, and everything is happy and satisfying. And then the cop comes up. And I'm still satisfied and everything is okay. And then the IRS comes. And then Putin comes. Maybe he brings a tank with him and I'm still okay. That's fine. Everything is happy. Their problems are their problems, are not mine. But we have to remember that we are safe, that we are secure. And even if there comes the time of your own death, we can still handle that quite well. Oh, Mr. Putin, as long as you're going to kill me, I might as well thank you for it. I've been thinking about suicide anyway, and now seems like a good day. Go for it, man. Do your best. I mean what's our choice if he's going to shoot anyway why do I have to be in a bad mood to get killed I can get killed in a good mood <laughs> if your mind is already trained that way that's why we have to practice it over and over and over and over and over, and over again so that we can continue practice it boy, when we need it the most
0: can I ask a question?
1: Sure. I've been waiting you.
0: Good. So you're, you're habitualizing your mind to a joyful state and you're hitting all the cows in the head when they come in as uh, unwholesome states. And over time, the cows just kind of do their thing more and more without you have to whack them as much.
1: Um, Well, if you're congratulating Um, yourself for having a wholesome thought, then the next thought's more likely to be wholesome. If you are pressing at yourself because the last thought was unwholesome, then the two of them together, the unwholesome thought that you had, and then the unwholesome reaction you had to the unwholesome thought, the next one is likely to be unwholesome. So we set up the pattern.
0: Yes, but... In the end, it's it's changing the habits
1: of the mind, essentially, right? hmm Now, don't so, look for perfection in every one of them. There are going to be some unwholesome thoughts come by. The question is, is when they harm you, when they hurt, know it. Yeah. yeah. Wakey, 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 wake up to the pain. So If you are in bed and you roll over and a great big poisonous snake bites you because you were asleep, the right thing to say is is that that snake's not going to come into the room unless I know it. But it's not even going to get a chance to crawl in bed with me before I know it. And if it does crawl in bed with me and then it's touching me, for sure I'm going to know it. and I'm going to make precautions so that it don't get bit. The question is, how long does it take? There are many, many opportunities to wake up. One way of waking up is after you've already gotten bit. Another one is to wake up to recognize that you're in bed with a snake. The next one is to recognize that uh, you're in. There's a snake in the room. Right. Mm-hmm. So if you look at it from that perspective, you can say, well, these thoughts will sneak in. And they may be in the room or not, and I don't even know it. And now the next thought is in the bed, and the next thought is biting. Right. And so how soon can we wake up to this is also exactly the way that we teach about the teacher Samupata, backing up. The faster that we, the more observing we do, the quicker we are in observing. The more observing to do, the more we wake up and take a look, then the stronger it becomes a skill. And we do it over and over and over again so that those hindrances are recognized just as they're starting up. And if we can catch them just as they're starting up, then we can maintain wholesome thoughts right after that. Generally, what happens is one wholesome thought leads to another wholesome thought leads to another wholesome thought. When are you going to wake up before it's time? To, now you're big. Okay. So how soon can you wake up? That, that whole sequence may take 10 seconds, may take one second. But in fact, people uh, can that. have a flash and then uh, a flash of a memory, one thought moment, and then they recognize that they're full of anxiety, uptight, fearful, and they don't even know what thought it was that led them into such a tremendous um, uh, release of adrenaline.
0: I, I actually don't have time to ask this question, but my next question would, would be um, concerning the fruitions that I heard so much about in the Mahasi style and with Daniel Ingram. W- how does that make sense? How is it used and where does it come into play? Would be my question, because you can be happy without having a fruition ever.
1: I'm, I'm, I'm missing the actual object of the question.
0: I've heard you talk about
1: Mahasi. What, what's actually... Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Um, I th- my impression is that Daniel Ingram and Mahasi Method sort of the goal, if you will, is fruition.s Is to um, what? Is to have fruitions, cessations.
1: Pardon? I'm I'm Frui- fruition. you danced around it again, and all I need is one word. keep <laughs> it over and over again. I'm missing what your point is. Fruition. Fruition. Right. Like A banana ishion or an apple a fruit mm.
0: <laughs> No, like the um, I think Daniel Ingram describes it as uh, frames sort of being clipped out of the movie, you're you're completely disappeared in the final um, samadhi stage.
1: Okay, the, the ninth, here's the ninth something jana. that we can all right, here's the thing that we can begin to understand. And that is, is yeah. that whatever those states are, you're not going to live your life in them very much. Yeah. Let's, t- let's build some skills that are useful moment by moment, day by day, etc., like that, rather than looking at something way over the moon. Now, here's the point. When people want that stuff, they don't get it. They're in a state of wanting something they don't have, and that's how they practice their meditation. And so the likelihood of most people getting fruition is zip. However, if you're practicing the skills that we're talking about here, there's no end to them until you do reach the end. And the end would be the succession of the feelings, but you're not going to uh, have succession of the feelings until you really learn how to manage them. you are not even going to have succession of thought. Until you really learn how to manage your thinking. Okay. It's like. a, um, uh, Let us say a seven headed snake. A hydra. That you can't stuff that. Uh, seven heads into a box. And expect the whole snake to stay in there. It's going to find one way or another. To get out of that box. You have to cut the heads off. One at a time. The second head you cut off. You did it exactly the way you did it the first time. How is that? Because you got the skill of cutting the heads off. When you cut the first one off. So when the second and the third one comes by. You'll know how to do it. And you've got the confidence that you can walk right up there. And cut the fourth head and the fifth head. And the sixth head. And then after you've got the seven heads of that snake. Cut off. You can stuff it into a box. You can stuff it. But you got to. Go for bringing it down, bringing it down. Another example of that is a horse that's just wild. It's all over the place. No fences at all. And so the first uh, thing is that you would take the horse and put it into a pasture. So he's in a safe place. He's not all over the place. He's in a pasture. Then for the training, you take the horse and put him into a corral or into a building. And after... Uh, the horse gets settled down and in there, then we can take the horse and put him into a stall so that the horse has to stop.
0: I have okay. to leave so I'll, did, I'll just say
1: thank you, Damorado, and thank you guys. I'll see Let you me finish tomorrow. one little thing. One one little thing. One little thing so that we can tie this together. Thank you. And that is is that The mind we settle down by number one, we take it out of the entire world and put it only into a wholesome pasture. Then we take it from that wholesome pasture and put it down to into a small kind of thought sequence like a mantra or or, excuse me, uh, a a song or uh, a chant, a sutta, something that we do over and over and over again. Just like a horse goes around that stall over, around and around and around and around. And then the next one is, is when we put it down to a mantra like boo-do, boo-do, boo on the in breath on the outbreath. And when we get the mind in such a state as that is when we can bring it to a stop altogether. But so long as there's unwholesome thoughts and the mind is all over the place, the possibility of being able to stop the mind is just impossible. you got to practice. And the place to practice is to get the mind into a wholesome state, because that's most of the work. Getting getting that horse into a pasture. Put some boundaries up. Don't let it out. That's one wholesome thought after another. So that's the first jhana. Let's put it in a pasture. Makes sense. Okay. Thank All you, right, Leonardo. guys. Well, let's go ahead and finish the call now. I think that we Milne's uh, uh, got to go first. So. Bye-bye. We'll see you later. Anybody Goodbye. else got any questions? One, any one little comments? question, Damarato? Yes, sure. Uh, Go ahead. For a good uh, a mantra to learn, if you really want... Well, uh, the mantra best is when it really, really means something. Mm, that, it, that would be a, implied in my question. Right. The the sound, the the length, the syntax. The sound, the length and the meaning of it because we want a mantra that's going to uh, bring up some delicious thought um, as opposed to a mantra or a phrase that is meaningless as opposed to some kind of phrases would be downright harmful.
0: Is there a good Pali
1: uh, mantra you can recommend? Uh, well, be, rather than a mantra, I would go for learning, memorizing, and being able to say over and over and over again the two-line phrase of so bhagava raha sammha charana ichacharana samdhanalo bhavidu anuttaro purisadhammas Devamanusanam Buddha Bhagavati.
0: I don't remember the sutta. Well, um, well,
1: it's in sutta number 12 in the Majjhima in the Lion's Roar. It's yes, there. Yes, right, Lion's Roar, yeah. All right, it's in many, many places. And here's the funny part about that one. This, this is what I love the most. And that is, is that the Buddha actually. As he's repeating that, or as he's about to repeat it, he asked the question, how could anybody get this phrase out of the teachings of the Buddha, of the Four Noble Truths? That in fact, So aha Sambuto, all of that is magical thinking. But... It is magical in the sense that if you know it, it magically, with the power of it, puts you into a really, really good mood. I really, really like it, yes. uh, especially the end of it. Deva Manusanam. Okay, well, what is that? Deva, The Devas and the people. In other words, he's the teacher. But one of the things he didn't say all of that, that the actual way to understand that correctly are the devas or the same way that we use the word deva when we're talking about Hollywood, celebrities, top-notch people, aristocrats, kings, rich people. And then the next group is the Manusanam, which is, in fact, uh, let us say intelligent people. The Manu is this part of the brain. If he was talking about ordinary people, he would have either used the word sita, or a better word uh, that's often used is uh butajana. Ordinary people are not capable of learning the Dhamma from the Buddha. Only the, uh, and in fact, uh, the, the verb that's used is the verb that's used for driving horses. He's the driver. He's the charioteer. Of the devas and the and the uh, intellect intellectuals. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. <laughs> so that's a good one to re- repeat that over and over again. And man, you can just get into it. It just goes on and on <clears throat> and on. And in fact, there's a five minute version of it uh, as uh, just you know do. It's on one of our uh, uh, YouTube. It's on the YouTube channel. So you can do a, uh, a search for it to be so or whatever like that in the search group.
0: The, the Dhamma dudes or?
1: Yeah, no, in the mm-hmm. uh, 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 Dhammarato Dhamma, the big one. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. One that has more than 1200 videos. So this one of the short ones. If you could actually list them by uh, the length, like we can do in the, um, no, we can't do it. I don't know of any place where we can actually go by the length of the of the thing. But it's going to be one that's under under five, under ten minutes. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that would Brilliant. be the next place to go after you've gotten the mind, one wholesome thought after another, after another, after another, and you're really, really rocking and rolling. Then we sing that little song over and over and over again. But any song will do. <clears throat> Any wholesome song, and the 50s was full of them. I think since we've had uh, uh, hard uh, rock and uh, heavy metal and all of that kind of stuff, it's all overly sexualized. Mm. But in the 50s, it was too sexualized already anyway. But there are a lot of children's songs. and uh, I mean, you can really get off on the little jingle of uh, Jesus, (laughs) Jesus, I know. Well, the Bible tells me so. Okay, so little things like that, uh, and then the uh, the the shorter version would be something that you could peg to just the in breath and the out breath. So boo, do. do. boo, do, boo, do. and then you get mm-hmm. the so a boo, and then a do. do. and that's how you get the mind to stop. You got to slow it down. You got to put mm-hmm. some. Got to put it into a corral, and then put it into. I mean, put it in a pasture, then put it in a the corral, then put it in a stall. And now we can get to it. <laughs> Marvelous. All right, guys. Well, this this will do today. Thank you so much. This has been a nice yeah, Sunday, thank you, everyone. Hmm. Thank all of you. Marcus, do you have anything to say? <laughs> 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 oh no, my God, <laughs> See you. Okay, bye bye, guys. Bye. Bye. No worries. No worries, man. No worries.